Blog Talk Radio. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Anthropocene and to Suicide Earth. I'm Van Carter. I began this project six months ago with the intent of interviewing the most relevant authors on the planet, those who are focused on the climate crisis. Whether through fact or fiction writing, these authors are doing their part to make us pay attention to the calamity for which we are all complicit. These various books have caused me to be upset, forlorn, hopeless for the future, somewhat upbeat and hopeful at possible solutions, aghast at eyewitness accounts of the damage we've already caused to happen. But the book Losing Earth by Nathaniel Rich has got me angry. So far we've always talked about what is, what can be, what the future should be. But this book looks back, back at where we were, how even nearly 60 years ago, major publications were talking about it, how over 40 years, well, I think I'll let the author tell you how, in 1979, we already knew nearly everything we understand today about climate change, including how to stop it. Nathaniel Rich, I'm glad you're here to talk about this. Thanks for having me on. Good to speak with you. Yeah. Well, let me take a moment to tell the listeners a bit more about you. Nathaniel Rich is known as a novelist and essayist, although this book, Losing Earth, is some of the best overall news reporting I've seen. This book won more than one award. He's a Yale graduate who's written several books, including three novels. He was an editor for the Paris Review and contributes to several major magazines, including the Atlantic, Harper's Magazine, and the New York Review of Books. I'll repeat myself, Nathaniel. I'm a retired broadcast journalist, and this book is superlative journalism. You're inside meetings from over 40 years ago, yet you know what was said and what people were thinking at the time. The reason is you actually interviewed all these people in your book, from Al Gore to John Sununu to James Hansen. No wonder this book is highly touted. It's great stuff. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. It was, um, it was a lot more work than I, I thought. It, <laughs> yeah, I thought it would be a lot of work, it was, but it went far beyond um, my expectations. But it, you know, it was necessary to be able to write the story and to write it in the way that I, I wanted to, to write it, which is as a you know, a, a close uh, narrative. Um, as you said, you know, I wanted to be inside the meetings. I wanted to be inside personal relationships. Um, and for s- some of the principal characters like Hanson and, and Rafe Pomerantz, I wanted to be inside their heads, actually. So um, it, it, you know, it took a lot of work to, 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 to get there, but, but that was also part of, you know, some of the most enjoyable work that I, I did is to, to get a level of intimacy um, into the story, um, it, it, you know, that was that was a rewarding process as well. Well, you said that between uh, we're going to be back in the last century, but between 2000 and 2016, the fossil fuel industry has spent two billion dollars to defeat climate change legislation, and and the 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 point of your book is that everything was already understood in 1979. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's it's it's not so much the point as the premise. I mean, we 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 had you know basically total scientific clarity on on the the large questions of climate change by by then by 1979, um, and you know even to the degree of uh, specificity of being able to predict, um, you know, what would happen to, spe- to specific regions in America or other parts of the world in 20 or 30 or 50 years. And at that moment, there was a, an awakening in policy circles in, in Washington and in, and in other global capitals um, about the need for some kind of urgent response. And the story that I, I wrote about was is the story of that response, you know, chiefly in, in the U.S., which was leading the way um, for much of that time. Um, and, and over the next 10 years, from 79 to 89, um, there was actually an incredible acceleration in terms of uh, policy and, and action and, and, and strategy about how to respond to this existential threat uh, to the point where by the end of the decade, we were on the precipice of what was seen as a then as a global solution, which was an international treaty to phase out uh, greenhouse gas emissions and be a binding treaty and and, uh, enforced. And and then, of course, that crumbles at the last second. And um, and and then, you know, we entered this this paralysis that we've been in uh, since 1989, which is basically uh, no prospect of meaningful climate policy and and the oil and gas industries. You know, nefarious um, plotting to stop any kind of meaningful full policy, and you know that that part of the story I think is is you know more familiar to people. But what what was unfamiliar and what was interested me was you know how did we fail during this this golden period when there actually was a lot of momentum and uh, possibility to do something um, profound. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you you point out that in 1896, a Swedish Nobel laureate, uh, what, Svante Arrhenius, something like that? Arrhenius, yeah. Okay, he saw that fossil fuel consumption could affect the atmosphere. 1939, Britisher Guy Callender calculated carbon dioxide in the air and noted that, quote, man had become able to speed up the processes of nature. 1965, two weeks after his inauguration, LBJ sent a special message to Congress explaining that his generation had altered the composition of the atmosphere on a global scale with fossil fuels. And, and the first World Climate Conference uh, in, was held in Geneva, February 1979. Fifty nations agreed then that it was urgently necessary to act. Yeah, there's a steady drumbeat um and and tremendous concern among um, you know world leaders to some extent, but especially the people who are guiding scientific uh, and to some extent foreign affairs policy um, within the major um, nations uh, of the world, um, that something had to be done. Uh, you know, in 1979, they didn't really know what to do. They didn't know how to address it. Um, Politically, they they knew that emissions had to be phased out. They knew that we had to stop burning coal. We had to transition away from oil and gas. They knew that we had to um, con- convert our economies to renewable energy. Um, but the the mechanism by which uh, to achieve that was was still somewhat obscure. But over the course of the decade, 
um, by the by the middle of the decade, uh, a plan emerged, uh, which was a global treaty, and you know it, that that began the the IPCC process, which is you know still with us today and sort of increasingly watered down iterations over the years, over the decades now. Um, but that that process begins in the middle 1980s, and the strongest version of of a deal of, of a global treaty, um, it was the first one presented in, in 1989, um, and and ultimately torpedoed by a, a pretty small uh, group, small faction of people within the George H.W. Uh, Bush administration, and it's a it's a shocking, um, dramatic uh, story that 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 hadn't been told before. So it was, it was exciting to to you know uncover some of the details about how that happened. I mean, you know, with, with climate change policy and climate change generally, it's such a big subject. It's so complex. The science is so complex for people, especially if you're not, it's for, for lay people. Um, and the politics also seem overwhelming. But, uh, you know, when you, when you zoom in, uh, really what we're talking about are some conversations between a few powerful people uh, in Washington uh, during a time when, um there was a real, you know, possibility of of, of, a, of a global treaty, and um, you know the story of those conversations hadn't been told before, and and it was, um, but they're they're shocking, and it's I think they're they're it's worth understanding, um, you know, not only the big picture stuff, but the the intricacies of the you know the personalities, the the people involved, uh, who were uh, you know for a brief time had the fate of the the planet uh, in their hands. Yeah, yeah, it, it was shocking. Uh, some, the the things that that we learned uh, through your book, and it's it's kind of unusual for a, a nonfiction uh, story to have what you might think of as a protagonist in it. But Rafe Pomerantz sure seemed like one. Yeah, he's um, just a fascinating figure, and, and he became for me the heart of of the story. I I think it's unavoidable that he's the heart of the story because he was really single-handedly driving um, climate policy or, or efforts to, to enact climate policy for most of the 1980s. And, you know, I, the way I, I didn't know he existed, like most, I think, people, at least before. I'd never, Earth, I'd, like, you know, I'd never heard of him, no. Yeah, nobody's really heard of him, and that's that's by design because he is the kind of guy who likes to um, be behind the scenes and, he knows enough about um, public opinion, about about you know strategy, political strategy, um, to know when you know he's the right person to be the face of of, of you know some kind of um, action, or uh, or when he's not. And most of the time, I think he he judges that he's not the right person to be the face face of of, of some kind of uh, policy action. But he he's he's brilliant at figuring out who should be uh, in front of you know, TV cameras and, and newspaper journalists and so on. And he, um, and he went to great, I should back up and say he was a, he was an air quality, um, he was an environmentalist and activist, um, for friends of the earth, uh, in the 1970s, a, a group that came out of, uh, was founded by David Brower, um, from the Sierra club. And they had worked on, you know, clean air, the clean air act in the 1970s and, he came to climate change in a very sort of surprising way in that he just read a government report that made reference uh, to global warming. And he was so shocked 
that this <laughs> this specter of, of global warming existed that he he studied up on it and 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 came to see how you know dr- dramatic it was and and he spent the decade um, pushing for a, a, a major governmental response and and he really guided the, this this uh, trajectory which was largely successful through the decade until it it wasn't and he did it behind the scenes and he had never spoken to reporters uh, before about his role in all of this, but everybody I interviewed, all my first interviews with all the sort of obvious people, the James Hansons of the world, uh, you know, the Al Gore's staff and all those people, they all said, you need to talk to this guy, Rafe. And and when I finally did, I found this just the most charismatic, um, you know, kind, uh, entertaining, uh, brilliant uh, person and I realized um, it was a kind of aha moment in the reporting. I realized that this is actually the guy. This is the guy who was driving the action for the whole decade. Um, and and fortunately, he agreed to open up to me completely in a way you know, that he hadn't come close to doing with with other reporters. And and that really made the story work. It really did. And 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 uh, some some other historical tips. Uh, some aha. There were a lot of aha moments in in this book. Uh, uh, in, in 1943, in L.A., smog was so bad, people believed it was a chemical, a chemical attack from Japan. They didn't, they didn't understand that, that they were causing it. In, in uh, 1965, the uh, Science Advisor Committee warned of rapid melting of Antarctica, rising seas, increasing acidity of fresh water. This is 1965. In 1975, Margaret Mead said that we're facing a period when society must make decisions on a planetary scale. And I I think it was 1979 and the Charney Report, Carbon Dioxide and Climate, that brought everybody around, didn't it? Yeah, and that was a report that was inspired by Rafe Pomerantz um, holding a series of high-level meetings within the Carter administration, including with uh, ultimately with Carter's uh, chief scientist, Frank Press, um, and in, in which, you know, Pomerantz was essentially just telling everybody he could, and he was, he was well-connected on Capitol Hill, um, telling everyone he could about that this is a serious problem and had to be taken seriously and, and that uh, something had to be done. And so, so Frank Press um, ordered up this, this report by Joel Charney's thought of as the kind of, you know, grandfather of modern meteorology, highly respected, um, powerful within sort of uh, political circles. Um, and he convened this, this sort of all-star cast of, of um, you know, scientists, the, the, basically the, the country's um, most senior experts on um, questions of, uh, you know, the oceans, of weather, of clouds, of um, heat and so on, uh, and and got them together uh, and went over all of the available science on the subject of global warming, and came to uh, the conclusion that it was, um, you know, it was all right. <laughs> it was all it was all something that that had to be taken seriously, and and they predicted that um, there would be warning of three degrees Celsius, plus or minus one and a half degrees. Um, in 50 years, and, and it seems like a kind of um, abstract notion or sort of mathematical uh, solution, but in fact, it's, you know, that's the number that uh, 
sort of motivated the, the the government into action and motivated politicians into into action and and led the way for climate policy. Um, and you know the predictions of the Charney report have have held up uh, now, 42 years later, and that really kickstarted the the policy conversation in in Washington. Some other historical notes that I learned from your book in 1957. 1957, Humble Oil, the Exxon predecessor, published a study about the enormous amount of carbon dioxide that was going into the atmosphere. Also in 1957, Edward Teller told the American Chemical Society that fossil fuels could cause climate change. This is in, in 1957. Uh, uh, the... the uh, the election of Ronald Reagan set things back. Yeah, it did. Um, <laughs> it uh, when when uh, you know just as momentum was building um, for congressional um, action on on climate, uh, Rafe Pomerantz was part of a of a group that that assembled uh, right before the election, the days leading up to the election. Um, to to advise Congress on how to act, you know, what laws should be passed to address the issue. Um, Reagan comes in and, and, you know, famously has this all-out attack on any kind of environmental regulation, really any kind of regulation of, of corporations, uh, period. And it's not so much that he's anti-climate change. I don't think he really knows it. You know, I don't think he or really anyone else in his administration knows the first thing about climate change. But the, the attack on the entire sort of world of environmental regulations on the Clean Air Act, on the Clean Water Act, on the power of the EPA, um, Department of Energy, the budget of the Department of Energy, and all of that required everybody involved in environmentalist circles, both you know, in, inside Washington and, and within activist groups, to summon all the, the power and energy they, can, they could just to avoid uh, sliding backwards. Um, to, you know, if the administration had its way, um, environmental policies would have would have probably slid all the way back to the age of, you know, Teddy Roosevelt. And so there was an all-out fight for years to try to stop um, all of these extremely ambitious and, and you know, potentially devastating um, proposals that the administration uh, had launched. And, you know, they were you know, to some extent successful, but, but as a result, it meant that climate change um, was completely off the agenda um, for, for a few years. And but, it, it cost, even, and that was, uh, those were years they didn't have to spare, really, and it, it, it cost them a lot to try to get, it, get the ball rolling all over again, you know, by the time you get to the second half of, of the Reagan administration. Yeah, I mean, even even with that, though, the the 80s were 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 still uh, very strong for for the 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 uh, the carbon or the uh, climate crisis uh, people. Uh, uh, I think that Rafe Pomerantz also had a hand in uh, James Hansen testifying in 1982 at Al Gore's hearing. Yeah, I mean, you have this is a fascinating portrait uh, you get of. of Al Gore, first of all, this young, um, you know, Democrat uh, from Tennessee who's trying to make a name for himself. He's sort of, to the extent that he's famous, it's as the son of a, of a senator um, who, by the way, has major ties with the coal industry. 
Um, and he ended up working for the coal industry actually after his retirement. Um, and Gore latches onto this issue um, thanks to a course he took as an undergrad uh, at Harvard with Roger Revelle, who's, who's the government scientist who first really raised the alarm in the 1950s about the issue. Um, and he uh, and he and and Pomerantz talk and and James Hansen, a young scientist at NASA, um, who's studying these these issues, um, it comes around and and starts to publish major major scientific uh, reports on on the issue, um, and and dares uh, you know at the time was somewhat scandalous, dares to make uh, policy recommendations in his report. So Hansen you know, published a, a major report in 1980 um, and one in 81 and picked up by the New York Times, who's on the cover of the New York Times uh, daily. And he uh, said, not only is this, you know, a problem, not only are we raising carbon dioxide concentrations to unsustainable levels in the atmosphere, but we need to stop burning coal uh, if we want to have any chance of, of arresting this, this trend. Um, and so that got him a lot of attention and, and led to these hearings. And, and, you know, as we sort of alluded to before, I think Pomerantz realized that a, a credit that Hansen was, was in some ways a uniquely credible uh, voice on this issue. He was a NASA scientist. He worked for the government. He was this plain spoken uh, guy from Iowa. Um, you know, he, he, he came across, uh, as a sort of a down-to-earth guy, um, a straight shooter, uh, and and he figured Pomerantz figured that he would um, get attention when when someone as sort of straight-laced as he started to make these these uh, pronouncements, um, and so they he worked really hard Pomerantz to get Hansen in front of uh, TV cameras, and and he thought the best way to do that was through congressional hearings, um, and Gore also um, understood the, uh, the effectiveness um, that, that a Hansen would have. And so they, um, that was the beginning. You know, Hansen is famous for giving this, this, this testimony in 1988 um, mm-hmm. before Congress that elevated the issue to an international um, concern. But, but really, he had been appearing, thanks to Pomeranz and, and Hansen uh, and, and Gore to some extent, uh, he'd been appearing before Congress almost every year through the 80s, and um, and and it, it began with with the efforts of, of yeah Pomerantz and Gore to get him uh, in front of of TV cameras. Well, as young as he was, Gore uh, already understood uh, that he he said that then he said the reforms that were required were of such magnitude and sweep that quote they would challenge the political will of our civilization unquote boy did he get that right and uh yeah our our political will is uh, uh i mean even back even the the oil companies did not start out as the bad guys they you know they they were what they were doing uh was was not a good thing they they were they were understanding that uh, Exxon was spending on global warming research. There were there was there was talk about them, uh, which which they should have been doing all of this time. There was talking about them uh, transitioning into renewable renewable energy. Uh, but but uh, but as as we stated earlier, you know they 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 spent uh, two billion dollars in 
the first 16 years of, of this century uh, 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 discounting uh, any kind of climate legislation. Just recently, that, that uh, was it a vice report about that lobbyist that that they uh, or was yeah. it, who, who, who confirmed nothing no, has changed. That maybe, yeah. Yeah, nothing's yeah, changed yeah, in no, their disinformation or denial campaign. Yeah, which which should come as no surprise probably to anybody who followed this. But yeah, it's, you know they're just as sinister and and calculating as they've ever been. I mean, I think it, I think your point is is right that you know they weren't they weren't the good guy. I mean, to be clear, they weren't the good guys in the '80s. They weren't they weren't going out of their way to um, you know raise uh, concern about what their industry was doing. Uh, but they were following the science. They understood the science, as they, I think they've understood the science the whole way through. And they, um, as you said, Exxon, which, which was the most sophisticated, had the most sophisticated um, scientific uh, lab of any of the, of the, of the, in the entire oil and gas industry, and, and you know, even, even prided itself as having uh, the most sophisticated lab of any private in, uh, company in, in the world. They had a whole carbon dioxide um, project, and they were doing their own experiments. They were having um, some of the most prominent scientists uh, who had studied the subject. They were having them in for conversations. They were, you know, they were well on top of the research, and and they were even for a period in the early '80s, um, you know, attending these government symposia uh, about, you know, usually convened by the Department of Energy or, or Sometimes by Congress, um, trying to determine you know what kind of solutions uh, would would be necessary. So now they didn't act virtuously, virtuously. You know they didn't do anything virtuous, but they were at least they understood it and were trying to 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 grapple with it uh, internally. And um, you know I think the story of what happened within the industry, you know how you get from there to the just out and out you know, um, misinformation campaigns, propaganda. Crimes against humanity. Crimes against humanity. Yeah, how you get from one to the other is is a fascinating uh, and somewhat nuanced story um, that I, I wanted to tell and very closely because it's, um, it, you know, it's not a black and white thing and the, 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 the development of how, you know, how this occurs within the industry is, it's fascinating and I think ultimately very revealing um, about some of the, the greater challenges that we face uh, when trying to address climate change. But, but you can see that, you know, as, as careful as, as I was moving through the chronology and the story, I wanted to, to show the ways in which uh, these changes were occurring within the industry and within Exxon even, which is the most powerful player uh, within the industry. And, and, you know, to understand that, you also have to understand the the, the sort of office politics or the, 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 the corporate politics of, of a company like Exxon where you have a uh, science division and a corporate division and that don't talk to each other all the time. And so you had different factions even within Exxon uh, that, that can't, you know, this fight sort of came to a head internally um, before they went, you know, full Death Star. <laughs> um, and so yeah. that's also a shocking story to tell. And it was, I was, you yeah. know, I, of course, I can't talk to, I can't go into Exxon headquarters and, and, you know, get an interview, but I was able to speak with a lot of people who were, who worked there at the time or worked at the American Petroleum Institute who could, 
um, reveal a lot of, of, of fascinating details that had not been publicly known uh, previously. Well, we'll get we'll we'll get a, a little closer to that uh, in 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 a moment, but I, I'm going to try and stay with the chronology here too. Uh, uh, big 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 event in 1986: uh, the hole in the ozone layer. Suddenly, we've got a global emergency, and by God, they got things done. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, the, you know, we take it for granted now. I think a little bit when we're talking about climate change that, you know, we need a global solution, that all every country has to be involved, that it's not enough for just one country to take measures. It's it's a global problem. Um, that, you know, how that would work was not clear to people, uh, to politicians or scientists or activists in the early 1980s. In fact, one reason why, um, you know, Rafe Pomerantz was essentially the only environmental activist who was working on this on this issue uh, in the first half of the 1980s is because it it was so unlike other issues that um, at least the American environmentalist uh, community had had taken on. Um, it hadn't know, become like, political and, yet either. It hadn't become political, but it was also a a, a, dis, a global problem as opposed to a problem an isolated uh, example of some kind of um, outrageous you know pollution. Um, which was which was the typical model uh, that that groups like the Sierra Club or Friends of the Earth, uh, you know, they knew how to fundraise off of that. They knew how, what kind of political action was necessary. They knew how to solve those problems. They knew that um, you could rally, you know, uh, the victims and and get people to sympathize with their plight. Um, they knew about protecting, you know, beautiful uh, places and 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 keeping them safe from from industry, but. The idea of a, of a problem where the, the composition of the atmosphere had shifted in such a way that it was going to cause, you know, devastating problems, but not for decades, that was a very different beast. And so it wasn't really until the ozone hole and, and the political response to, to that, which ultimately was, you know, the Montreal Protocols, a, a global treaty um, to stop uh, emitting this, these uh, hydrofluorocarbons that were causing the the, the ozone hole, um, that, that gave the, the climate people um, uh, a way forward. That, that showed them, you know, gave them a protocol of how to act and, um, you know, what it would take to get a global coalition um, together and what kind of treaty would be necessary. And, and it gave them the kind of the language, it gave them the playbook um, that they needed and that they've been following ever since. But before the ozone, you know, that was really the first global environmental problem that, that our governments have taken on. And so it was um, a huge turning point in, in, in this history. Yeah. And, and then in the uh, summer of 1988, uh, uh, we had what is hereafter known as the Hansen hearing, when he spoke again to Congress and he made it very clear, although the White House tried to censor him, he made it very clear the greenhouse effect is detected and it's changing our climate now. And even the New York Times came out with a headline from that, Global Warming Has Begun, 1988. Yeah, and, and he was right. Um, at the time, it was, you know, some other, some of his colleagues sort of raised their eyebrows, but but... 
that, that he had statistical proof that warming could be detected in the global temperature records. But, but in fact, he was right. And, and his testimony coming as it did in the middle of the, what was then the hottest summer recorded history in the U.S. Um, had a hugely galvanizing effect on the, the national discourse. It, it raised the issue into, um, you know, the, it forced it into the bedrooms and kitchens of, of Americans across the country. It became, um, it got to the point where I think there was a poll at the time that you know, two-thirds of Americans were, were very concerned about the issue. Uh, and, you know, most, most importantly, it was not, it was still at that point not a left and right issue. Um, in fact, after that hearing, you have George H.W. Uh, Bush campaigning um, on solving on the, the greenhouse effect. Yeah, on the environment, yeah. even to the left, in, 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 you know, contemporary terms, we say he was campaigning to the left of the Democrat, uh, yeah. Michael Dukakis. And so, and there were prominent, you know, Republican senators then pushing for major uh, policy, um, huge bill, sweeping bills in Congress that were, you know, that would that make the Green New Deal proposals look, um, you know, sort of uh, lightweight compared to what was was then being being uh, proposed. You and said so, there were 32 climate bills passed that year. Yeah, 1988 introduced introduced um, oh. 1988 and. Uh, a couple um, were just huge omnibus, um, you know, acts, and the oil and gas industry was convinced uh, that that Bush, uh, once he was elected, would would make good on these these campaign pro- uh, promises, and they they warned um, their members that you know major law, uh, major changes are going to come. Yeah, this is where we get to what we were talking about earlier. The American Petroleum Institute offered uh, two choices, essentially, to BP, Shell, Arco, Chevron, Mobil. Uh, they, they, they said they could, you could go with the next wave, uh, which, which would you know, be, you know, we need to make all of these changes to make the world better, or you could choose a fragmented world model which essentially is where we have come to. That's what they did. They decided to, to, uh, to, to assemble and, and to deny and to question, et cetera. Yeah, there, there was a decision. A decision had to be made after Hansen um, gave that testimony, and it became, you know, cover of time and Newsweek and, you know, Fortune and all the rest. Um, that you know what what was the oil and gas industry stance going to be and you know that although there had been a time earlier in the decade where they had spoken of you know you know bragging about how they were you know they were energy companies they weren't oil and gas companies exxon had a solar division um you know they 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 were they're they're at the time that, you know, they were expressing concern about uh, the head of Exxon's uh, lab division was, was expressing concern about climate change and saying we need to move away from oil and gas and, and take on some of these other forms of energy. Um, that had shifted quite dramatically by the time you get to the end of the Reagan years, um, for both because of the politics of the Reagan administration and because of internal reorganizing at Exxon and and. American Petroleum Institute and some of these other 
major corporations, they had they had decided to place their bets on oil and gas um, for the foreseeable future. And so by the time you have Hansen's um, testimony and it, and it starts to seem like there's a real possibility of, of, of global action, meaningful global policy to, to, to stop, you know, phase down um, or fossil fuel production, uh, they're, you know, they're pretty committed. Uh, and so, they have to figure out what to do, you know, whether to do a, a pretty um, extreme um, course correction or to just plow ahead. And, of course, um, they plowed ahead with, with um, apocalyptic ramifications for the, for the rest of us. And, and part yeah. of plowing ahead was, was a change in their um, marketing strategy, their public relations strategy, which was to minimize the problem, uh, to question this, the the certainty, um, and you know, I I have I found for the first time the these a pair of white papers by um, the from Exxon the, at the highest levels of Exxon and at the American Petroleum Institute that both come to the same conclusions, which is that we need to as an industry um, we need to minimize the problem essentially and. Um, and, and the F, and the idea was not to stop any climate policy, but just to make sure that whatever policy was passed, whatever laws were passed, that they uh, weren't, um, you know, that, that they they were as as harmless as possible. You know, they didn't want to get hit too hard. They were sure at the time, I think, that they would get hit, um, but they just wanted to make it as grad the pain as you know as gradual and minor as possible. Um, and to their surprise, these you know their earliest efforts to minimize the problem. Um, were enormously successful in, in the court of public opinion, and and so they kept pushing it and they kept pushing it and until that you get to the point by you know a few years later in the early 90s where they've gone into you know they start they start toying with full on denialism and and then yeah. um, you know you, you sort of know the rest at that point but it's yeah. there's a calculated shift in their strategy that that takes place after the Hanson hearing that I think, you know, most people don't really understand or know about, but it's, it's all there in these, in these documents um, yes. that are, are written right after, after Hanson's testimony. Yeah. And Hanson testi- testified again in May of 1989, and this is before everything fell apart. Uh, in November of 89, there was the first major diplomatic summit on global warming held in the Netherlands. There were 60 nations there. And everybody just everybody there just anticipated uh, that they were going to come up with with uh, a treaty with with some with some teeth in it. And I was I was quite surprised uh, to learn from your book that it seemed like there was one major player who just completely crushed all that. And it was Bush's uh, Herbert Walker Bush's chief of staff, John Sununu. Yeah, Sununu really emerges as a fascinating figure. I mean, he's he's very hard to pin down. He resists, um, you know, easy summary or caricature. But he, uh, you know, he helped get, you know, credited by some with, with with delivering the White House to Bush when Bush was struggling during his campaign. He was then Sununu was then the governor of of New Hampshire, and uh, Bush's victory of the primary in New Hampshire was. In New Hampshire, was seen as this come from behind um, momentum uh, shift 
for his campaign, and he he glided all the way to the White House, and so he gave Sununu um, the top job in the White House. And, and Sununu is this former um, academic scientist, and had his own um, cranky ideas about climate science and and more broadly about um, scientists who uh, reach conclusions on on major global problems that would would require um, significant government intervention in in the marketplace. And he was highly skeptical, basically, of any kind of... um, uh, just any any kind of call for for government action to to regulate corp, you know, corporations basically um, in service of of some kind of um, environmental outcome, and so he was he was from the get go deeply suspicious and and really hostile to the science of of uh, global warming and the kind of pr- proposals that were were coming out of Congress, and he fought uh, hard <laughs> to try to stop them. Um, and insisted that he was a better scientist than, than the government's top experts, even though he was, you know, knew nothing about these, these fields of science. He was in a totally different field. And he um, engaged in this, this battle with the head of Bush's um, EPA, Bill Riley, who was a Republican but was very concerned about climate change and, and was, was, was really pushing for uh, a U.S.-led global treaty to, to stop um, uh, CO2 emissions. And, and so the, the final phase of the book largely concerns this battle between these two um, centers of power within the Bush administration, Riley and the EPA, and uh, Sununu. And, and Sununu is the more powerful figure, ultimately, and has, uh, is closer to Bush's ear. And so after going... You know, as though the power shifts between them over the course of the first year of the, of the Bush administration, um, ultimately Sununu, who's also much more of a sort of political uh, wolf than, than Riley is, he's, he's able to win out. And uh, his intervention is enough to scuttle uh, the global deal that, that was then under negotiation um, in, in, in Nordvik and in, in the Netherlands at this major conference of the world's environmental ministers. Um, that we're, we're hoping to ratify the, essentially the first draft of, of a global treaty to phase out uh, greenhouse gas emissions. What I thought was really sad uh, was the, the, you noted that, that when, they were, when they were in the meetings and Pomerantz, Pomerantz could not go to the, the final meetings where they were going to hammer, hammer out the, the so-called treaty, etc., uh, uh, you noted that he feared if they delayed a treaty until 1991. By then, it would be too late. Too late in 1991. Here we are, 2021, and it's way, way too late now. Uh, yeah. Anyway, you well, was... you noted you noted that the upshot of the failure of that conference was a decade of hope and progress turned into air. I want to read something directly uh, from your book, if I may. Uh, sure. Where we are today. More carbon has been released into the atmosphere since November 7, 1989, the final day of the Netherlands Conference, than in the entire history of civilization preceding it. Earth is now as warm as it was before the last ice age, 115,000 years ago, when the seas were more than 20 feet higher. In 1990, 
humankind emitted more than 20 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide. In 2018, we were projected to have produced 37.1 billion metric tons, another record. Since the turn of the 21st century, the world's fastest growing energy source has been coal. Since the turn of the 21st century, despite every action taken since the Charney Report, the treasure invested in research and renewable energy, the non-binding treaties, commitments, and pledges, the only number that counts, the total quantity of emitted greenhouse gases, has continued its inexorable rise. Holy moly. And now we get to the uh, Global Climate Commission. Boy, that sounds great. The Global Climate Commission, that really sounds like, you know, somebody that could really be uh, uh, helpful. <laughs> and it's big oil spin. It's, it's, it's big oil's uh, 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 mask. They were spending a yeah. million dollars a year to crush public support for climate policy. Well, yeah, well, what's interesting about that is, you know, they, they would spend, as you, as you noted before, they would spend billions later to, to fight climate policy, but you know, at, at the beginning, 1989, 1990, um, they're spending, you know, significant, some money, but, but it's really, you know, for the oil and gas industry, it's, it's peanuts. It's, it's essentially a side project by the, you know, communications division of American Petroleum Institute. Uh, and the project is this, yeah, is this, this sort of um, paper company, paper coalition, uh, global, global climate coalition to, um, which, which, hires a few um, sympathetic, you know, industry sympathetic scientists to write op-eds, to give quotes to reporters writing about climate change, uh, in which they just uh, introduce this idea of doubt. They were paying off people. They were paying off people to write. Yeah, they were bribing scientists. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. Some of the scientists, uh, you know, and we're really talking about three or four guys, um, you know, a couple of them... I think came by their opinions. Um, honestly, might be overstating it. I mean, there there are things in their 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 own politics and their way of view in the world that made them like Sununu deeply suspicious of, you know, government policies that might be used to address um, scientific problems. But you know, the others were were just yes, just totally ha- total hacks who saw you know they could get a couple thousand dollars here or there for you know publishing an op-ed suggesting that this whole climate change thing is overblown. Um, the industry also started having uh, private meetings with politicians uh, to express their, you know, doubts. Um, and they started, uh, you know, giving quotes to reporters that, that also that did the same. And, and, and so what, you know, what had been a, an issue about which there was no, you know, there was not two sides, you know, it's just an alarming uh concern that and people were trying to figure out what to do about it all of a sudden um you know they they played into this sort of journalistic fetish for for two sides coverage and that we have in, in our in our, you know, in our in our journalism as i'm sure you, you know, you've professional experience in and, and and uh the journalists ate it up because now you had a kind of tension it was much more of a of a story that you could tell that um, you know, actually, this might be overblown. There might be, you know, we might be wrong about this. Things might be okay. And, and those pieces started appearing, and they got a ton of, of traction. Um, and, and once they realized that this was a good investment, that this was something that would work, they basically 
um, put all their money into the public uh, public interest campaign. They, they they put all their money into these um, efforts to try to bamboozle uh, the American public into thinking that the issue was unsettled. And um, and that's how you get to a point now, decades later, uh, where you know a, a good chunk of the American uh, voting public. Uh, is not terribly concerned about the issue or doesn't even think it's real. Um, and But, yeah, it all begins back <laughs> – that all begins back in 1989 with these a couple hacks of the APIs that starting to, to put out their feelers uh, to some scientists and to some journalists about, you know, well, what if – you know, we, we think this is – this might not be so bad as everyone claims it is. Well, they didn't affect just the American – just the public, uh, the, the uh, Global Climate Commission – you pointed out in 1997, spent $13 million on a single ad campaign, and they got a Senate vote of 95 to 0 on a climate issue. And and the, quoting you from the book, there has not been another serious effort to negotiate a binding global climate agreement since. Yeah. That, you know, by the time you get into Kyoto, um, meeting of the IPCC during the Clinton administration, the politics have shifted quite dramatically. So, as you said, you get a unanimous vote, you know, including from people like senators like Joe Biden and John Kerry um, against uh, a global treaty. And, you know, they've already internalized this idea that climate policy will be economically ruinous, which is an industry um, talking point. Um, but that's now bled uh, into the politics, of, and um, and you know the die is cast at that point, um, and we've entered this sort of <laughs> this this stasis that that has been with us really uh, uh, since then. Um, Even in 2009, and, the the uh, you, you point out the oil and gas industry in 2009 spent half a billion dollars. Uh, they're spending more and more money all the time lobbying. To weaken energy legislation, and 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 that was the the, the uh, you know that was when uh, Obama had just come into the White House, despite the House passing comprehensive climate legislation, despite a 59 seat majority in the Senate, the Senate declined to take it up. Yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, I think the story of the failures of the Clinton administration. Uh, we could deserve its own book and, and, and the Obama administration too. But of, of course the politics are very different in these, and you know, it's become by the time you get to uh, Obama, certainly it's this, this deeply politicized issue. Yeah. I think, I think there's an argument to be made that he should have, you know, prioritized climate over yes. healthcare. Um, yes. I, you know, would that have worked politically? I I don't know. Um, I don't either. You know, but or or you know, was it possible for him for him to put more political capital behind his climate bill? Um, I remember there was a good uh, New Yorker story about that at the time um, that he failed to do that. Uh, certainly, the Clinton administration, when Al Gore was in the White House uh, as vice president, um, you know, their failure is is in some ways even more damning. Um, and the total abdication of responsibility on the subject um, by the Clinton administration, um, despite sort of making these gestures that they were they were active. I, my sense from talking to people inside the administration, including people like Rafe Pomerantz, who was then 
part of the Clinton administration and, and Tim Worth, the former senator who is, um, had left the Senate to work on this issue um, under Clinton. Um, I, my sense, uh, they were deeply um, disillusioned by the, by the process as well. But, um, yeah, that is, the, that is the subject for another, another book and one that really hasn't been written, actually, about, about either of those uh, administrations. I think the Clinton story is, is, is the more fascinating uh, one to tell. So I'm, I hope someone else takes it on because I, I, I'm not going to, but it's, it's a worthy subject. Well, the, the bottom line is that Exxon new the auto industry new electric uh, the electric utilities new the government new congress uh, has been holding hearings for 40 years everybody knew and and again i'm i'm going to read something directly from your book everyone knew and we all still know we know that the transformations of our planet which will come gradually and suddenly will reconfigure the political world order. We know that if we don't sharply reduce emissions, we risk the collapse of civilization. We know that two degrees of warming is considerably worse than 1.5 degrees, and that the use of half-degree intervals is itself euphemistic. Every gradient is worse than the last. 2.1 degrees is considerably better than 2.2 degrees, which is dramatically better than 2.3 degrees. We also know that the coming changes will be worse for our children, worse yet for their children, and even worse still for their children's children, whose lives our actions have demonstrated mean nothing to us. Whoa. Yeah, I, I, it's hard to draw any other conclusion. I mean, the, 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 it's pretty stark looking back at the history, um, you know, that there's a limit to what, uh, you know, that a lot of politicians have given good speeches, have made promises, but, but when you look at the actual actions, um, there's very little to show uh, for all of, all of the rhetoric. And, um, you know, we like to think of ourselves as a long-term species. You know, we like to think that we think about the future and that we, we care about the future, that we we care about the rights of people who are going to come, you know, after us and, and, and who might not even be born yet. Um, and I think that the truth of the matter is that we, you know, we're more like a middle-term species. You know, we, we, we really pay attention to the immediate threats. We think a little bit about, what comes next, but we really don't think beyond that. Um, and, and that's, you know, that, that's reflected in the way our, con- our economies work. It's reflected in the way our governments work, you know, term limits being an obvious example. Um, it's reflected in our legal system and our affairs with other governments. And, um, you know, I think we have to be clear eyed about, <laughs> about our limitations. Um, not to say those are the only, you know, it's not, not to say that the only limitation is, uh, our, our sort of solipsism. There's lots of other limitations and challenges, particularly from the oil and gas industry. But I think we do have to be clear-eyed about uh, the problems we face from ourselves, you know, and our inability to really tackle these these major uh, crises uh, when they they seem too big or too distant. Um, of course, the, the calculus of climate change is always shifting, and and the, the long-term scenario yeah, scenarios that in, in Rafe Pomerantz's time where long-term scenarios are now 
pretty short-term scenarios or even, you know, immediate scenarios. And as I, I say, as I'm fleeing a hurricane today on the Gulf Coast. Um, so, you know, that, that calculus shifts and policy starts to become, uh, seem a little more possible. Um, but, but, you know, I think one th- thing I, I really learned in, in, in reporting and, and writing this, this story of this period is, um, you know, that the limitations we, we put upon ourselves um, that, that, you know, that are in our own nature are, are, you know, significant as well. They can be overcome, but, but we have to be um, alive to the, the, the risks and the challenges that we face um, even before we get into the problems of, you know, complex global policy or, or you know, oil industry um, shenanigans. Well, Pope Francis is definitely a friend of nature, and he calls uh, he calls everything that that is against nature he calls them sins. Uh, and just a short thing uh, out of your book: "quote It is not yet widely understood, though it will be, that when a government relaxes regulations on coal-fired plants or erases scientific data from a federal website." It is guilty of more than merely bowing to corporate interests. It commits crimes against humanity. What do you think about these efforts at the Hague to to get the uh, the, the World Court uh, to to consider, you know, environmental uh, crimes uh, as crimes against humanity? I think it makes sense. Yeah. I think it makes sense. I mean, I think that's where we're headed. Um, you know, the legal story is complicated. There's been lots of efforts to hold, at least, you know, just speaking about the U.S., to hold the U.S. government responsible um, and to hold the oil and gas industry responsible um, for these tragedies that we're now living with. Um, most of them have failed, um, but that doesn't mean they will continue to fail. And I think as as we move forward, both the moral um, depredations of, of industry, particularly, um, will you know will be, become too glaring to ignore or excuse, and and so I think we're headed there. Um, we haven't quite seen those repercussions yet, um, but as we live in an increasingly you know degraded planet because of, of out of control um, you know CO2 emissions and greenhouse gas emissions, I think that there will be a, a, a greater push. Um, greater support uh, for some kind of, you know, uh, accountability. And uh, so the Hague example is one of them. I, I, I think there, you know, there are a lot of mechanisms one could pursue. I think, um, you know, th- their time will come. Um, but it, but it's also, uh, you know, satisfying that some, you know, maybe like jailing, you know, evil Exxon executives might be um, or, or demanding, you know, reparations, Um you know that's that's not going to solve the problem, um, but it, it it may be that it's it's part of a solution that that you know like with any atrocity that there has to be some kind of accountability for the society to move on, um, you know psychologically, morally, um, and and so I, I expect that will happen, but we're probably you know it's prob- probably not in the in the immediate future either. So Nathaniel, are you going to be doing more work in this area? We need your skills. Uh, that's kind of you. I mean, I, I don't think you can be a writer today um, and write about the world without um, reflecting, uh, you know, some of this 
this is, you know, the climate climate change and our sort of larger environmental um, degradation um, has to seep into the work if you want to write honestly about anything, you know, whether or not, you know, even if you're not writing specifically about the science of climate change or the history of climate change, you know, where climate change is now part of the fabric of our reality. Um, it, it, you know, there's no national, political, really social question that doesn't, uh, it, it isn't affected by the specter of, of climate change. And so I, I feel like it's inescapable. Um, I don't, you know, I, my, my most recent book, Second Nature, is in part about climate issues um, and about more broadly our this larger ecological shift that we're now into a, from a world uh, that we, you know, perceived as natural to one that's, um, you know, completely reordered by, by our activities um, and a future in which we will increasingly take responsibility for, for uh, shaping the planet that we inhabit. Um, but, but after, you know, but, but I don't, I don't know if I will engage as directly on these, you know, specific issues. Um, but I do feel like it's, you know, it'd be like writing from a bombed out Dresden and not mentioning the war. I mean, you, it's sort of, it's there. It's part of, it's part of our reality now. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. I'll be a war correspondent. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for the work you put into this book. It's no wonder it, it won awards. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, it's, it's great to, to speak with you about it, and, and I'm impressed by all, all the, the interviews and the, the, the work that you're doing on, on these, these things. Well, thanks, and uh, good luck to you. Get, get your family out of the way of that hurricane. Thanks. I'll do my best. Appreciate it. Okay. All right. Thanks. All right. Take care. Nathaniel Rich, a novelist turned investigative reporter on behalf of the planet, on behalf of us. The book's title is Losing Earth, A Recent History. And if you don't want your blood to boil with disgust, don't read it. But it's easy to read, and it's not that long. It's just staggeringly crushing to learn that we knew all we needed to know in 1979, and we've done nothing. But it's clear that big oil is guilty past and present of crimes against humanity and all the individuals who participated in that past and present need to be brought to justice i end with how nathaniel rich ends his book quote everything is changing about the natural world and everything must change about the way we conduct our lives it is easy to complain that the problem is too vast and each of us is too small But there is one thing that each of us can do ourselves in our own homes, at our own pace, something easier than taking out the recycling or turning down the thermostat, and something more valuable. We can call the threats to our future what they are. We can call the villains, villains. The heroes, heroes. The victims, victims. And ourselves, complicit. We can realize that all this talk about the fate of Earth has nothing to do with the planet's tolerance for higher temperature and everything to do with our species' tolerance for self-delusion. It's suicide, Earth, and we're not just killing us. (laughs) 